Gamers Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh brothers, sisters, friends and definitely some foes are going to tune into this podcast and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host Dili Hussain. Uh, today's episode is a continuation of the COVID-19 series which we kicked off two weeks ago where we invite analysts and experts to provide their insight and their thoughts on the current pandemic. Now before I introduce today's guests, uh, the most updated statistics uh, of the positive cases of coronavirus around the world as well as the death toll should be on your screen. And for the sake of clarity and time sensitivity, the date of today's podcast at the time of filming is Sunday the 12th of April. Now today's guest is joining us all the way from Australia and funnily enough, the last three, four episodes have been with healthcare professionals and scientists looking at the pandemic uh, from a medical and scientific perspective. That said, amidst all of this, we have not uh, focused much on the situation of persecuting Muslims around the world. You'd think that in light of a global pandemic, that religious persecution, Islamophobia and things like this would hopefully take uh, a major decrease at a time of global crisis, but unfortunately it hasn't. And to discuss this further, we have a respected columnist, author and anti-Islamophobia activist, CJ Wellman. CJ, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, Deli. Uh, mate, great, day. great to be on your program. Finally, uh, awesome to talk with you. No, likewise, it's been uh, well overdue, man. And uh, hopefully when we have you in the UK, we can actually have you in the studio with us. <laughs> yeah, well, almost. I think we we're planning it last year, but it didn't yeah. quite happen. What's the situation up in Melbourne, in Australia? Mate, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, as we're talking off air, I mean, we don't have it as bad as you guys have, uh, have got it right now. Um, mm. I think we just passed about 6,000 cases uh, with about 57 uh, fatalities. Um, I mean, Australia is an island. We have the benefit of being able to close our borders, uh, which has been effective in, in slowing down the rate of transmission. I believe something like 70% of all cases which came uh, have, have evolved out of Australia came from overseas transmission. We've had a very little community transmission with the virus. Um, but like you guys, we're under lockdown. Um, it's Easter Sunday here. And you, I mean, you can't even have immediate family come and visit you. Um, uh, so it's people are quite lonely, um, but we're not dealing with the, you know, the complete level of misery and shock that you guys are going through. I mean, the level of the level of suffering and death that you guys are going through in the UK is unfathomable. Uh, the United States, which is my home country these days, um, I mean, I can't even get my head around what's happening in New York at the moment. Mm. I mean, we've nearly had 10,000 deaths in that city alone. Um, you know, satellite, not satellite image, but drone footage showing mass graves um, being built or constructed in New Jersey at the moment. I mean, you know, this is something out of a Hollywood script that we're all living at the moment, something that we would probably never thought we would have seen yeah, in our I mean, lifetimes. Yeah, I mean, I was telling my younger brother, Aki, who usually hosts the podcast with me, that it feels like we're in some kind of, like a Resident Evil 3 or Silent Hill kind of computer <laughs> game, but there's like a, it's, it's like a crazy dystopia. And just before, when I was telling you before we started filming, my Facebook has been inundated with just news of deaths. And, uh, and it's, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a crazy time. And, 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 and I hope, you know, as, as, as mankind, as humanity, we, we are able to overcome this uh, sooner rather than later. Um, but that said, you know, amidst all the news of lockdowns, curfews, um, death toll and all of that, I feel that attention has been taken away from the way China has handled this entire pandemic, right? Um, 
you know, we know that the source of COVID-19 was Wuhan. Uh, we know that the, uh, the Chinese government uh, were aware of this, as they claim, uh, November 2019. I mean, from your observations, what's your general take in the way China has handled uh, this virus? Yeah, I mean, the first, I guess the, my first point would, uh, has to be that, you know, we, we've got to be very careful in not racializing the virus. It's not a Chinese virus. It's not the Wuhan flu. Um, you know, it is COVID-19. Um, you know, viruses come from, they come from nature. This virus is certainly not manufactured, as some conspiracies will have you believe. Good, we got but that out of the needs- way. <laughs> we got yeah, that out of the way. Come from a, yeah, it didn't come from a biological weapons factory uh, or, okay. uh, or planted by the CIA. Um, you know, or, the, from, the or from 5G. From tra- <laughs> yeah, or from 5G. Or from Bill, uh, Bill uh, what's his name? Um, what kind of thing? Uh, Bill Gates. That's yeah, the other one good. going around the moment. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but maybe, yeah. But ha- that said, China, um, when this is all said and done, when this is long past, I mean, China has to be held account uh, for this. Um, they knew about the virus. Um, they silenced whistleblowers. They lied to the World, World Health Organization. They lied to the international community. Uh, therefore, they cut down the time that uh, we had to prepare for it. Um, and that has exacerbated what should have been a crisis uh, into a global catastrophe, which is uh, the, the, you know, what are we up to now? Um, you know, a, a couple hundred thousand deaths now globally. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we've noticed, you know, that, that count doesn't show any signs of slowing anytime soon. In fact, it's going to probably kick up a, a dangerous kick as it hits into places like Indonesia, country I spent 10 years in. I mean, I, I'm very familiar with the healthcare facilities or lack thereof in a country that has 220 million people. Uh, they, these countries don't have the ability to test and contact trace and then isolate. I mean, so what's going to happen to these countries like India, 1.2 billion people, um, the same sort of thing. They don't have the infrastructure to test, contact trace and isolate. Uh, I mean, we're going to be looking at an astonishing loss of human life and, and an you know, unrecoverable financial damage in the wake of this is going to take a, re- a generation to recover from. So China has to be held account at some point or other for what it's done. Um, but I mean, you know, China can't be trusted on anything. And that's a problem with China. It's an, a secretive authoritarian regime uh, which lies about everything. I mean, it lies about its GDP growth, lies about its unemployment. Um, and it has to lie because its whole... You know, the Communist Party regime is all built on smoke and mirrors because they have to fulfill uh, the promises to their people or the legitimacy of Xi Jinping or the Communist Party mm-hmm. collapses. Um, and the same thing from a foreign policy point of view. They have to project strength where sometimes there isn't. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, the, the numbers that they're putting out, they're not recovering at the rate that they uh, claim to be. This is all part of China projecting to the world that, they have the solution to uh, crises where the West doesn't. I mean, from the if you're sitting in Beijing, if you're a member of the Communist Party right now, you uh, you believe the world is already the next Cold War has already begun, and you're acting like it. Um, they believe they're in a war of uh, a war of ideals at the moment against the West, um, and this is one you know uh, giant arm of that at the moment. I mean, just I mean, I mean, there's certain things that we're going to discuss, and I'm going to posit to you, which I'll be frank with you. Um, I don't have evidence to substantiate it, but it's a feeling that I have based on 
the Chinese regime's uh, track record, right? In the way that they dealt with the Uyghurs, the way that they've dealt with Turkic minority, with Tibetans, with Christians. Just when you can tell that a particular regime or a government has a track record of uh, duplicity, lying, deception, I have a, a bad hunch that even November 2019 isn't an accurate time as to their knowledge of when this COVID-19 spread. Number one. Number two, if what you just described, the raison d'etre of the, the CCP, is to project this image of power and invincibility and, and, and strength and so forth, do you think that that mindset is the sole reason of as to why they didn't inform the rest of the international community about this virus? Do you think it, that those ideals are strong enough that it trumps that? Yeah, absolutely. But it, it's more than that. It's more than, you know, the the kind of power and image that uh, the Chinese Communist Party wants to project to the rest of the world. It's also the way the country is struck up from a, constructed from a governance point of view, where uh, honesty is not necessarily rewarded. Uh, dishonesty is. I mean, you've got... Uh, when people come forward with the truth, uh, and that this can be reporting economic growth numbers. Well, when people come forward with the truth and it's not what your, the, the, uh, your boss or the, the party official above you wants to hear, you quickly disappear in that country. We've seen so many whistleblowers and so many activists who were reporting what was happening in Wuhan. They've now disappeared. Some of these yep. individuals became overnight YouTube. Uh, celebrities in their own right reporting on the streets of Wuhan. They no longer exist, whether they've been killed or forcibly disappeared. And China's network of gulags, we, we don't know. And we probably never will find out. Um, so you could, and that, that was part of the problem. Um, it, it slowed down um, uh, the communication coming out of Wuhan, the communication coming to Beijing, and the, and the communication being spread to the rest of the world, because lower down ranks were trying to suppress it, trying to keep uh, the crisis from not becoming a crisis when it was already out of their control. Um, and then people up the food chain weren't getting the accurate and timely information in a way that would have enabled even China to respond to the crisis. So, I mean, it's, it's a failure of their whole way of governance. At the same time, it's China's effort to um, turn this into some, some kind of global propaganda victory. Now, you briefly mentioned... Uh, the statistics and obviously if you look at uh, China's uh, death toll, the cases that have been tested positive, the recovery rate of the last 7 to 10 days there's been according what's on what's been provided by the Chinese government is that there's been a steady decline and there was even one or two days where there were no death tolls where there were no recorded cases I find that so hard to believe right? I mean why, why, why believe anything the Communist Party has to say? I mean, when, when, when news first broke, and I was one of the first journalists to break, um, you know, news of China's Muslim concentration camps in yeah. Xinjiang, first they denied the existence of, of those camps. And then they said, okay, it is true, but yeah. um, they're for counterterrorism. And then it was found out, well, hang on, you've got uh, PhDs and school, PhD professors and school Absolutely. teachers. Uh, yeah, it's, oh no, sorry, it's not for uh, counterterrorism, it's for vocational training. Well, yeah. why do PhD scholars <laughs> need <laughs> vocational training in yeah. a detention camp or a concentration camp? So nothing the, the, the Communist Party says is accurate or true, and there's no reason to believe, on, on, believe them on this data. Um, you know, there's one, one compelling um, statistic came, or a point of data came out rather, that showed in the last four weeks, cell phone usage in Wuhan and the surrounding area 
had dropped by 21 million calls I as per a normal, yeah, per a normal month. Now you would think, logic would have it that when people are under lockdown, well, you're on your any kind of form exactly. of communication more, more, more so more. than yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And so, you know, they're talking, that's a loss of 84,000 users at 21 million calls mm. uh, missing translates to. So it just shows you uh, that what, you know, the, the numbers are trying to giving it real. There was another, what those uh, journalists who did it called up every uh, crematorium in Wuhan yeah. and did basic calculation on the number of um, um, cremations they were doing that there was about 43,000 extra yeah, uh, deaths and what China had reported just on the base on the numbers of people, number of um, uh, crematoriums these um, pilots were putting through. Um, did you read the the coverage where the Chinese regime started or, or tried attempting to blame Italy for the source of the virus? Did you did you did you follow that madness as well? No, no, I didn't. Yeah, so basically, I mean, I, I know China's blaming blaming everybody. Yeah, so so basically, yeah. for about for about two weeks on the trot. Uh, the Chinese officials and diplomats were basically quite clearly alluding that, look, maybe Italy, you know, it, we believe Italy was the source of the virus, not Wuhan. And and that was quite outrageous because it's not a position which they're currently maintaining, but the audacity to blame Italy uh, for, um, yeah, w- without uh, without any substantiation, I must add, uh, was, quite sh- was, quite, was quite shocking. Um, Uyghurs. Uyghur Muslims and Turkic minorities is an area which you have been raising awareness about and as you rightly mentioned you are one of the first journalists to raise awareness about uh, the re-education concentration camps. Now in many factories in China eventually were shut down because of the virus. However there's videos have been emerging um, you know family testimonies that look Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslim minorities are still being forced to work in factories in these uh, environments despite lockdown and shutdown of many of, of the factories. And it appears that the Chinese government doesn't seem to really care much about how the Uyghurs are, would be affected by this, and, I, and I'm not surprised at that. Um, this ongoing treatment of the Uyghurs, right, which of course it's, it's gained mainstream attention last two years, yeah? Uh, yeah, and then prior to that, maybe a couple of years by some journalists and some actors. But generally speaking, it's just come to the uh, surface now. Um, what's your thoughts on the way the Uyghurs have been treated throughout this pandemic, um, and, and and the way that you know th- their oppression just carries on as normal? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very good question. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of answers to that one. Um, I mean, China, as you know, China's very secretive statements becoming increasingly secretive with the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it's effectively closed its borders to uh, all foreign uh, uh, immigrants or migrants at the moment, like most countries have. Um, the area of Xinjiang, where 13 million Uyghur Muslims uh, live, that's in their indigenous homeland, uh, that area has been shut off to journalists and human rights activists for for you know months and, and if not more than 12 months now um and even if you can get into that region where well, you're you're uh, escorted by a heavily armed uh, group of chinese yeah. communist soldiers so um so uh, nobody really knows what the current um condition is for uh, upwards of three million incarcerated Uyghur muslims are at them in at this present time but we can you know it, it's it's an easy or fair judgment to make that conditions are, are pretty grim. I mean, why would the Communist Party, why would the Chinese Communist Party bemoan the deaths of three million 
Uyghurs from the coronavirus. That would that would help their overall ambition anyway. They wouldn't care if all thirteen million uh, Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang disappeared overnight from coronavirus. It would uh, solve a lot of headaches. Um, Absolutely, for that yeah. Reason. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, they wouldn't, wouldn't have to, uh, you know, carry out this uh, secretive and covert operation to forcibly indoctrinate them uh, that they have been over the last two years. It'd be problem solved, they'd be gone. So that gives me a lot of reason to be uh, very alarmed about their safety and well-being at the moment. Mm. Um, getting information is really tough. As you can imagine, I have a lot of, I've worked a lot of sources, a lot of contacts, a lot of family members of uh, detained uh, Uyghur. Uh, expats who live in Australia, Turkey, the United States. Um, I've had many on my pub- podcast, many who've been willing to come forward um, publicly, which is not an easy job because then they fear for the safety of their well-being Absolutely. of their relatives who remain in China. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a scary time. And, you know, as a journalist and slash activist, I've never been, uh, you know, more concerned for their safety and well-being than I, is, uh, that I am now. Um, it is not beyond the capability or the moral uh, conscience of uh, of this regime to to use this as a convenient excuse to 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 get rid of them. Mm. Now, look before we move on to our next country of focus. I mean, you mentioned yourself that Chinese whistleblowers, journalists, have literally gone off the grid. They've gone missing, right? And in a country like China, uh, it is enough for you to merely just provide an alternative view for you to literally go missing, right? Um, What would your advice be to Chinese activists, campaigners, doctors, healthcare professionals who know exactly what's going on, who understand the scope of what's actually happening in their country, but they are... They are faced with this life and death situation Because it is a life and death situation CJ For them it is mm-hmm. right? Absolutely It's either they come out and, and start talking about these things publicly And they go missing or they be killed or they be silenced Or they take that brave step What would your advice be to those Who want to come out And, 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 and convey what's been happening in their country Over the last four, five, six months And it specifically to do with the virus But even before that What would your advice be to those who want to do it but are worried or scared you know how do you strike that balance if you're a chinese if you're a chinese person who's a whistleblower yeah. or a journalist yeah it's a great question that's a question that, that's not often asked but i mean there is no shortage of journalists in the west who would uh, love for that information and, and uh, you know there's no shortage of publications uh, in the united states yeah, the united kingdom australia who would love to publish that kind of information because that's what the world wants to know. I mean, the world doesn't trust what China's telling us. Um, they want to know, the, the world is anxious to know if what China is saying accurate to, because that would give us a glimmer of hope that maybe there is light at the end of the tunnel at the end of this. If things are as good as what the Chinese communist regime says it is, then maybe we have less to worry about than maybe our current concerns uh, hold. Um, that said, if I was living in China and I was a Chinese citizen, I'd be highly selective uh, of which journalists and which publications yeah. uh, that I wanted to reach out to. Um, I'd be reaching out to publications which have a, a, dis, uh, a very long and distinguished track record of um, protecting their sources and protecting their identities. Um, and there's several publications, I won't mention their names, that are quite high profile. I definitely wouldn't <laughs> okay. be contacting them. But yeah, contacting a journalist and a, and a publication that uh, uh, you know takes 
a good care of uh, of their sources is is critical. Now, just before again, I just want to squeeze in another point. You know, China projects like Russia. China projects this kind of um, us versus them, China versus the West, right? Uh, and they have equally said that look, let the West criticize us as much as they want. At the end of the day, we didn't go around invading countries. We didn't go around invading Iraq. We didn't kill a million there. We didn't go around gallivanting around the world with military bases stationed all around the world. These guys can equally not be trusted. How do you deal? And this is something that I've faced when I've been giving talks at universities across the UK on the situation of the Uyghurs, where certain Chinese students have turned up and they've raised the question, fine, our government might not be the perfect, but really... As a Brit, as a Brit, as an American, you really want to stand. <laughs> as a Frenchman, you want to stand here and tell us that we're not perfect. How do you counter that? It's, uh, that's a good, uh, good question, particularly from the point of view. And I, I get this a lot from um, a lot of Pakistani friends um, because China is such a close economic partner with Pakistan, for instance. Of course, uh, it's Due a to good CPEC example. And as one. That, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, China has invested something like $55 billion in Pakistan at a point in Pakistan's uh, history where its economy is, you know, ugly at its weakest point. Yes. Um, Imran Khan has done some good things and there are signs of, well, previous to COVID-19, there were some positive signs. Um, so most, most, you know, pretty much every Pakistani citizen is, uh, is aware of the importance that the Pakistan-Chinese relationship holds for the future of their country. Uh, and but therefore they are exposed a lot to pro-Beijing talking points and pro-Beijing propaganda, and I get this all the time. But CJ, are you sure this is not like a CIA yeah, propaganda yeah. thing? You know, like yes. are you know, is there really three million upwards of three million Muslims in these concentration camps, or is this just just a way for the CIA to smear China and you know in this new Cold War? I mean, and it's it's very much. That kind of thinking is very much in line with Western leftist thinking. Yeah. Um, in in the mind of the Western left, particularly anti-imperialists uh, or anti-colonialists, which I count myself as, I'm against imperialism, against colonialism, but I also understand how the international system that we have works. There are no good nations. Nations don't do things out of altruistic behavior. Nations do things to For self-interest. power. Yeah, yeah it's all about accumulating yeah. power. Um, because the only way you the only way you can protect yourself in a world which has no global authority, and we live in an international system where there's no global authority, um, no ruler, is to accumulate as much power to power to protect your borders. Um, Self defense or national defense becomes the first priority of every nation state. Therefore, all states are bad actors. The United States isn't the only bad actor. Did the United States kill one million or lead to the deaths of one million Iraqis? Of course they did. Has the United States reduced whole countries to rubble because of their nefarious, you know, uh, and endless pursuit for self-gain and self-interest? Of course they have. But China does bad things. Israel does bad things. Myanmar does bad things. Um, the United Kingdom does bad things. My country does heinous things. We've been putting refugees from Muslim-majority countries and sticking them in offshore detention camps, basically prisons, Guantanamo Bays in the South Pacific, because white Australians can't stomach the idea of more Muslims being on their soil. Um, you know, so we all, all states do bad things. China does bad things. And 
that's what a lot of people you know need to get their heads around they are capable of doing this and they are doing it we have enough testimony we have enough survivors the testimony of families and testimonies of you know um of human rights activists who've been up close and personal this is happening and it's true then, in, then on that matter, then I guess consistency is important for any activist or journalist, right? If, if, because if if you are going to stand up for the rights and the justice of the oppressed, then there, then there, there should be a consistency, surely, right? Whether it's China, it's, Myanmar, the West, wherever it may be, there needs to be a level of consistency, surely. And exactly, but there, but there isn't. Look at Syria. Syria is like, Syria is the perfect conflict to see how people look at that conflict through the prism of the, the predisposed uh, framework. And if you're anti-imperialist, then you, you become um, susceptible to conspiracy theories that the Syrian war is a greater Israel project or a Zionist yep, USA yep, project, yep, yeah, you know, yeah. to regime change, all this bullshit. I mean, yep. uh, <laughs> we, we didn't even try regime change after we used chemical weapons up to times. Yep. I mean, yep. what more does it take for some people to believe that we've never had interest in overthrowing the Assad regime? Assad is a monster that has killed, you know, more than a million of his own people to retain power. His father was a monster as well. Absolutely. Um, but... Yeah, look at it. It's this in its isolation. Don't look at it in this this grand chess game, which might or might not have the USA or Israel involved. Mm. Right. Moving on to our next country of focus, India. Now, before we get into the way India has dealt with COVID-19, especially with their Muslim minorities, it's important to obviously understand that a, a pogrom has just ended in Delhi, and other parts of India, uh, where it's been presented as communal violence, but let's be serious about it. It's literally just been Hindutva lynch mobs wreaking havoc in Muslim areas, right? Burning houses, uh, killing innocent people. We obviously had uh, the revocation of Article 35 last year, last December. There's been a lot happening in the region. Modi, I would humbly argue, in terms of a constituency of support, is now stronger than ever before. In fact, I believe it is incorrect to say that the Hindutva ideology and its many spectrums of support, you, it's mainstream. You cannot say this is a fringe movement now, right? No. From no. all the way from Bollywood to the biggest media tycoons, Hindutva ideology and its various spectrums of support is mainstream and live and kicking in India. One, ide- one propaganda that has spread from India is that Muslims are spreading Corona jihad, right? Now from now there's been videos you shared some recently of a fisherman in Karnataka in, in Bangalore. And Muslims are now being accused by Hindutva thugs. And this is something that's been peddled by the Indian press. There's gonna be some cartoons on the screen right now of mainstream uh, Indian newspapers publishing cartoons that's something you would imagine in Nazi Germany. Where Muslims are now being presented as the cause of um, the coronavirus. When will this madness stop? And and it appears that the Modi regime and their various ideological supporters will literally stop at nothing to blame Muslims for all of the country's uh, problems. What's your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the you know Modi and uh, the BJP and uh, RSS, uh, which is where BJP, the ruling party, gets its uh, ideological DNA from. I mean, this is almost a hundred-year project now. Um, I yep. think 1922, the Hindu nationalist movement really took off. 
it's been basically more than a hundred year movement or, or a hundred year movement to rid India of all non-Hindus and particularly Muslims first and foremost. Um, now, the COVID-19 has enabled Modi to do what uh, it wasn't able to do against the Anti-Citizenship Amendment Act protesters. Um, yep. When the Indian uh, parliament passed the law uh, in December, you had nationwide protests, uh, secular Hindus, secular Buddhists, secular Christians, secular Dalits, secular Sikhs, joining, um, literally joining hand in hand and arm in arm. Uh, you know, one human chain protest spanned more than 700 kilometres. Um, mm. This had gal- galvanised pro-democracy, pro-secular Indians like never before, which scared the hell out of the Modi regime. For the first time, they could see maybe that they had gone too far in their effort to make it life as difficult for Muslims as possible in the hope that they will self-deport and leave the country. But then COVID-19, then they're culminating, obviously, with the, the Delhi riots in February, which led to more than 50 Muslims being basically lynched and, and set on fire and their property destroyed. Uh, this has given... You would you would naturally think, OK, well, COVID, this crisis has come along. They'll put that project on halt. But no, they've, they've used this COVID to, to, to gather steam. And, you know, the, you know, it all stems back to when the moment that 10 Indonesian nationals uh, were tested positive for the virus after attending um, a conference um, convened by Tablighi Jamaat um, yeah. uh, on October 10th, uh, sorry, March 10th, I believe. Um, and these guys tested positive March 19th. The whole media uh, and social media that, lit up. Yeah, yep. blame it. That's when Corona G had hashtag took off, been shared hundreds of millions of time. And the thing, you know, the Modi government, they know that it was uh, uh, not uh, totally untrue, but they never come forward and stamp out these conspiracies. They let these conspiracies take on their own life. And now, I mean, yeah, you see the social media platforms, TikTok. TikTok had found 30,000 fake videos uh, that accused or fake news stories accusing Muslims of spreading coronavirus. Yeah. You know, accusing them of spitting on fruit and vegetables, spitting on, you know, pedestrians, um, uh, spreading coronavirus in uh, Hindu um, village, predominantly Hindu villages and so forth. And, and that's, you know, producing the desired result. We're seeing, as you pointed out, those Muslim fishermen who were lynched, uh, Muslim truck drivers being lynched, mosques being attacked. Um, yeah, this is you know, uh, has really wound things up um, and, yeah, frightening. I mean, there's no other way to describe India as uh, it's somewhere on stage eight of Gregory Stanton's genocide watch, Um, Mm. you know, eight of ten stages at the moment. I mean, where do you think everything's heading with the Citizen Amendment Act and and NRC, the National Register? uh, Is the NRC, right? Was it NRA? The National Register Act. Yeah, No, NRC. yeah, yes. where, where, where do you think it's all heading? Because because there was there was there was a, as you rightly mentioned there was a strong momentum national momentum of some level of national unity amongst Muslims and the and, and other Indians from different backgrounds and then of course COVID nineteen hit. Where do you where do you think all this is heading? Uh, will there be a continuation uh, to solidify and consolidate those laws, or do you think that after once this pandemic settles, there will be some level of reflection from the Modi government? in perhaps making some amendments and not making it so draconian. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, man. I, it's, uh, I think India, India is going to be the next ground zero uh, when it comes to COVID-19 crisis. Um, 
I think the horrors that we're seeing in, in your country and the United States right now are going to pale into insignificance in the, in, in the context of you know, global suffering because India is going to be something else. Um, so what that does politically uh, in India is anybody's guess. I, I, don't, I don't really know where that road would lead. Uh, I can't imagine uh, Indians would, would have too much of an appetite to have more of the same after umpteen hundred thousand Indians have been killed by this virus or more. Um, I think a lot of people in India um, who are obviously not hardcore Modi supporters see him totally mismanaging this crisis in the same way Trump has in the UK, in the same way Johnson has, in, uh, sorry, the same way Trump has in the US and Johnson in the UK. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you've got these three right-wing populist leaders leading with the worst outcomes, um, you know, of, all, of any democracy, obviously, uh, including Italy and Spain at the moment. So um, I don't know what the, the future holds, but I know it's a terrifying, for one, uh, the, the present is terrifying for Muslims at the moment um, because, you know, the, the COVID-19 has just increased their, their, their you know, their threat, you know, um, they're being threatened in their villages. It's just an, adding a new layer already to their level of persecution. Now, obviously, we discussed China. China is a very secretive country. It goes out of its way and, and, and does everything it can to keep all its uh, shenanigans uh, hidden, secret, etc. Whereas India, surprisingly, is a very accessible country, right? Is described very widely as the largest democracy in the world. Um, and, and, and you can access its newspapers, you can access its TV stations, even from the UK, you can access many of their TV channels. And even in, despite that, right, the level of anti-Muslim bigotry and hatred is so mainstream, it's alarming, right? And it, 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 like from the echelons of Bollywood, all the way to the major NDTV, all the major news channels, the Hindu newspaper, it's literally on every level, right? And I, and I think that's what makes India perhaps the only, the most unique country of all in their persecution of Muslims, in that how brazen it has become, right? And um, I think I think if the if and when the COVID nineteen strikes India, that naturally a country that's currently in that ideological state. It's going to need someone to blame, right? And 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 they've already started that, and 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 I think that it is very worrying. I mean, I spoke to a friend of mine who's also a journalist, Zulkar Nain Bande. He's currently in he's currently in occupied Kashmir. He said, "Brother, he goes, he goes. Look, he goes. The pandemic has not affected us in any way. We're still in lockdown. We're still being oppressed. Yeah. We're, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, I, we still have no internet. The reason why I was able to communicate with him because he had a SIM card from Delhi, which had good internet um, networks. So I was able to communicate with him. He said, bro, he goes, people are dying. People are suffering from, from COVID-19 in our homes. We're not being able, being able to be treated in the hospitals. So India is literally heading towards a very dire state uh, in terms of Muslims anyway. What I want to ask you this is, CJ, right? I don't want anyone to think that we're somehow sympathizing or legitimizing, uh, you know, criminal activities or acts of terrorism. Absolutely not. But one cannot help but think that the way in which India, China, the Myanmarese, the way certain countries are literally propelling the persecution of Muslims, that does it or will it come as a surprise if there is a minority from amongst the Muslim population? 
who will resort to arms, who will basically just say, right, enough's enough, and we're going to now basically start attacking government buildings, start attacking armies, start attacking police. Heck, we'll even do some revenge attacks on Buddhists and Indians. Because, you know, will it come as a surprise? We're not saying that it makes it right. Absolutely not. It's wrong. I mean, I can tell you as a Muslim, the taking of innocent life and non-combatants is period impermissible and a, and a grave sin. But human nature is such that if you're a community that's constantly persecuted and have been for not years, decades, that there will always be a fringe and there will always be a handful from that community that will basically resort to violence. Because civil, civil disobedience doesn't work, uh, uh, engaging with the democratic system doesn't work, none of this is working. So we're going to have to resort to the, sh Should we be surprised if we start seeing some of these things? Well, no, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said human nature. Uh, I mean, I'm a, uh, I'm a non-believer. I have n no religious faith. I, I've just probably described myself as more agnostic these days, maybe described myself as uh, an atheist in the past, but uh, agnostic would probably be a more apt uh, description of where I am personally in my, uh, in my journey, in my mm. personal journey. But I can tell you this, if you killed uh, one of my children or my parents or anyone that was dear to me, my wife, I would stop at nothing to chase you to the corner of the earth and exactly. harm you. Uh, and that, that's not me doing it for any God. That's not doing it for uh, because of any religious text. That's just human nature. Uh, if you have the boot of your heel crashed against my neck long enough, I'm going to want to fight back. Mm. Um, when two, when Pal two million Palestinians, and I've been many times to Palestine and, and been in Gaza, uh, you've put two million people in a cage long enough, they're going to want to rattle a cage. Um, and this has nothing to do with people's beliefs. I mean, and this is what Westerners have a tough... Because Westerners are so brainwashed by war on terror discourse that they've come to associate all security discourse with the Islamic faith and therefore see Muslims as a security threat. Um, they forget, they, they'll say, oh, well, Muslims are a security threat. Um, and... The reason that they're using violence against the Israelis is because it commands them to do so in the Quran, which it doesn't, but that's what Westerners believe. Mm. But how come when you lie and at the same time that you demonize the Muslims fighting, fighting back against, or Muslim Palestinians fighting back against their occupier, at the same time you're doing that, you're lionizing the French resistance when Nazi Germany occupied them during World War II. Absolutely. Um, and the French resistance, the French resistance are lionized in all Hollywood films. Um, how is that any different? A legal occupier using brute force to suppress a local indigenous population. And that's what Israel is doing there. That's what India is doing in Kashmir. Um, there obviously the militant movement has, uh, has ebbed and flowed in Kashmir over the years, uh, particularly at, um, reached probably a, a high point in the, the early nineties. Um, but the Indian military, um, is so pervasive. Their technology is so extreme. They control the movement of pretty much all 8 million Muslims in that territory. They know where they're going, what they're doing. They track yep. them, track their cell phones, track their cars. Uh, they strike before you're able to strike them. Um, so it makes militancy or resistance against an illegal occupation hard. So can you blame them for taking up arms? Of course not. But if I lived under a 30-year brutal occupation in Kashmir, I, you know, I, I don't know if I'd take it uh, nicely. Um, I don't know why people can't understand that Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important um, For 
non-Muslim Westerners to understand, right? That sometimes we can talk from a from a position of privilege, of yeah. having our loved ones, having our property, having our family, having all of these things unaffected, and never ever being up for uh, the threat of being lost or taken away by force, right? Yeah. And and you know, God forbid that we ever have to experience that. You know, that where something of ours is taken away or killed or crushed in front of our very eyes, right? And, uh, the, and, and then I'm, you... I'm, I'm, yeah, I was, sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, I, you know, and you, you hit the nail on the head again when you talk about privilege. When I, I listen to friends of mine complain about having stay-at-home orders for the last two weeks, it's like mm. you're finally getting a taste of what it's like not to mm. be a privileged white Wester mm. where people in Kashmir and Gaza and Syria, this is their life for years at the same time that they're being told to stay at home or forced to stay in their homes they've been bombed periodically <laughs> you know so uh hopefully there's a this you know the this period is a little bit of awakening for a lot of people mm. just to briefly touch upon because because you because you raised the example of gaza as well i mean israel as well you know uh there's been reports that obviously they've not been allowing uh key medical aid to enter gaza that comes as no surprise um, there's been cases of Jewish settlers spitting on Palestinians and coughing on them. There's videos circulating. There's been cases of Israeli soldiers at checkpoints who, when they've seen, when they've checked the temperature of certain Palestinians and seen that they may have some symptoms, they've literally been beaten and just left on the side of the road. It's crazy, isn't it, CJ man? I swear to God, you know, I swear to God, you know, as a Muslim, yeah. sometimes I'm not gonna yeah. lie to you. I mean, I know you, I know you've been in touch with Zahid from Dawam. It's hot. As Muslim activists and journalists and media outlets in the West, it's so hard seeing this stuff. You know that. You'd think that yeah. a, you'd think that a global pandemic would, at some point, instill some level, even if there's a remnant of some mercy, just to put a hold yeah. onto this madness, just put a hold yeah. onto your persecution until this is over, and by all means, crack on as normal once this is over. But no, it doesn't seem to stop it, man. And it's, no, and there's, there, there always used to be the, this theory that the only thing that would unite mankind uh, is an attack from Mars, um, <laughs> and, you know, because then we would have a uh, a united or a you know a singular enemy. I mean, we have a singular enemy uh, that's affecting all of us, regardless of our race, nationality, ethnicity, culture, creed. Um, but it's been weaponized to exacerbate you know pre-existing hatreds in people let's be honest mate. if there's an attack from mars uh, i would not be surprised if the modi regime said that there were muslims up in mars <laughs> planning something you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> a, a lunar jihad yeah that's it a lunar jihad <laughs> bring the podcast to a close let me let me let me focus a bit about yourself right now you've been on a journey yourself um you know if i'm correct you espoused uh some 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 very problematic views against Muslims as well. You know, sure. you went through a journey, and now you find yourself as someone who, to some degree, are single-handedly from your platforms is raising awareness about many mm -hmm. of these uh, situations. Has it been for you, uh, in terms of social media, from the kind of uh, from from Hindu nationalists and CCP CCP supporters? How's it been for you in recent years since you've been advocating and raising awareness about Muslim persecution? Yeah, I mean, I, I it it doesn't bother me that much. Uh, you know, there's been a couple. Uh, well, okay, I'll try not to be too brave about it. <laughs> there's been a couple yeah. of moments which I've had a couple of moments which have uh, been somewhat scary, but uh, overall, ninety nine percent of it is, uh, you know, 
people making noise online uh, with online threats. It, it, it gets to me uh, when I can, if it's directed to me, it's no problem. But when they start, um, it's like any man, you start bringing in my daughter or my mother or my wife, uh, mm. you know, and then we've got a problem. Yeah, of <laughs> so, course, absolutely. Um, yeah, and then, uh, so yeah, when, when it gets to reaches that level, and, and I will say, uh, I get hatred from Asadus, Zionists, New Atheists, um, uh, Trump supporters, the MAGA crowd, you name it. But the vitriol, which is, and the, the sheer level of hatred and threats from Indian nationalists, it is, whew, it's, it's it something vicious, else. It's truly Bollywood, isn't it? Oh man, it's. Uh, I guess it's because it's such a big country. It's one point two or one point three b, and I, I think that magnifies the number, the sheer volume of attacks you get. But yeah, my my direct messages, which uh, go on Twitter, that just gets bombarded every day with, "I'm going to rape you," "I'm going to rape mm. your, your parents." It's uh, yeah, it's nonstop. But yeah, I, I, it doesn't distract me from you know uh, what I do. I, I believe very passionately in what I am, uh, and who I am, and what I'm doing. Uh, as you pointed out, I was an anti-Muslim bigot. Never was that way um, until I witnessed a terrorist attack in Indonesia in 2005. Uh, witnessed two suicide bombers detonate themselves on Jimbaran Beach in Bali in, in the month of October of that year. Um, I went on an anti-religion and more specifically an anti-Muslim crusade after that point. I blamed Islam for what happened. My friends and I were basically first responders that night and we had to sort out the living from the dead and put the, the living onto makeshift gurneys that we made out of wooden tables in these restaurants, uh, these seafood restaurants. Um, and yeah, I hated, you know, I lived in the world's most populous uh, Muslim country. Didn't have any, had a lot of friends who were Muslim, but I started really internalizing a lot of the anti-Muslim literature, which was out there, like from the likes of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins yeah. uh, and so forth. And um, yeah, I became them. I was channeling them, but then I studied what? Islam more carefully Um uh, learned, and then I studied terrorism, did, uh, did po- uh, graduate and postgraduate study, undergrad and postgraduate study in terrorism um, and realised that Islam and, uh, has nothing to do with, uh, with violent extremism. Um, it's a, a cocktail of a multitude of reasons. But, um, yeah, that's, that's been my journey. I've been trying to steer others away from a path that I, I uh, mistakenly took um, in the period from 2005 to 2009. So it was a four-year journey, right? Yeah, 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 it was oh. four years. So uh, so I've been doing, uh, warning others from, from following the same path for yeah, the last decade now. And uh, I'm still not tired. Yeah, yeah. that's good, <laughs> so, man. It's still, well, still CJ, man, it was, an, it was an absolute honor having you on, brother. And um, I, yeah. I pray that, you know, the journey that you're currently on, that you establish the truth and what's most pleasing to yourself, to your soul, to your spirit, hopefully, man. And uh, thank you for coming on to the Blood Brothers podcast. Keep up the great work. Good again. Yeah, thanks so much, Julie. I appreciate you having me on. It was a pleasure talking, talking with you. No worries. Brothers and sisters, uh, that is all for today's uh, episode. Uh, you can follow CJ Wellman on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, CJ, where else are you on? What other platforms are you on, brother? Yeah, uh, yeah Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, at yeah. CJ Wellman is my account for yeah. all. Yeah, and, and all of his articles, he's written some fantastic pieces over the time on, uh, on, on the Rohingya, on the Uyghurs. Uh, on Palestinians, on on the Muslim, on the situation of Muslims in India, please check out his work. Check him out. Follow him on social media. My advice to our Muslim viewers and listeners is that, in light of the pandemic, uh, in light of us all being in lockdown, with Ramadan fast approaching, 
you know, we can easily forget the plight of our brothers and sisters elsewhere because all of a sudden we're now experiencing some level of uh, hardship, whether it be lockdown or we've had families who've been in isolation, we may have lost loved ones. But keep in mind that uh, lockdown, in light of bombs and soldiers kicking in your door, killing your loved ones and uh, dishonoring your women folk is a living reality. For Syrians, for Kashmiris, for Rohingya, we got Uyghurs who are in concentration camps, millions, yeah, one to three million. Keep them in your prayers. Don't stop raising awareness about this situation. If anything, this pandemic should give us a, a renewed energy, right, in light of the very privileged and bratty lockdown that we've been experiencing in the West anyway. To carry on our activism, to carry on raising awareness, to carry on being the voices for those who don't have those platforms uh, to bring their plight to the attention of the world. Um, please like and share this video. Uh, subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. The most updated statistics for the coronavirus cases and the death toll will be on the screen right now. And until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Blood Burma's podcast. Five Pillars of Mad Monarchs production. production.